Though the poor and powerless And all the lost and lonely And all the thieves will come confess And know that you are holy and suffering, Lord, all the poor and all the powerless, that you are God, that you are Savior, and that you reign, and that you would be their Savior. So, Lord, give us that heart compassion. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Children, you're dismissed if you want to.
Well, good morning. So two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to uh, speak on the Great Commission right at the beginning of the new year. Uh, we looked that we were commanded as disciples of Jesus Christ to go make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the church, why we're still here today. It glorifies Christ, and it is the current ongoing work of Christ. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he says, I would be with you in this, even to the end of the age. So we know that Christ is working uh, in us and through us to complete the Great Commission. The Great Commission involved evangelism on the one hand, We're all supposed to go, and then at the same time, we should be building up one another, making each other more and more uh, disciples of Christ, following Christ better and better. And so in that, we have the individual responsibility as um, each person in the church to speak the word into each other's life, to have fellowship with one another, to go out and evangelize personally. Yet at the same time, we recognize that some people have gifts and are uniquely equipped to serve the body in a particular function so that when we all work together, we work cohesively and accomplish the Great Commission even better than if we were doing it individually. So we have the individual responsibility to fulfill the Great Commission. We have the corporate responsibility to fulfill the Great Commission. And then I said at the end of it that um, I'm looking forward to Romans 12 when we talk about the gifts so we can reflect again and see where it is that we are all us strong in what the Spirit has provided for us so we can serve. And it's important that if we are all not serving in the way that God's equipped us and brought us together to serve, then the church as a whole will suffer. It's like having a maimed hand or a dysfunctional liver. It's not good when someone is not uh, exercising their gifts within the church. Um, Then Bob called me this week and said that he was still sick, and he asked me to cover for him. So then I was thinking, well, obviously I need to continue on what I was talking about with the Great Commission. And I thought about dealing with the gifts and some other passages, but um, I was driving um, to work one day, and I was kind of I was thinking about it, and then it hit me exactly what I was supposed to talk about. But then the moment it hit me, I was excited because it's like, oh, it makes sense, perfect, excited. And then, like, my gut sank because I remember when I was studying this before, like, how, like, convicted I felt. I'm like, oh, man. That means not only do I have to like bring and hopefully like we'll all feel conviction, but then I have to deal with it for the remainder of this week. <laughs> I'm just going to feel convicted all week long, and I have. So if you feel convicted, please rest assured that I have been going through worse. <laughs> so all week long, I've just been praying for change. Um, this will be an area that even though we could, we could always do better and better in, no one has ever kind of reached the standard to which we are called. Um, this is a constant fight of sin that we're going to be dealing with. And so I'm pre- I've been praying, and I hope that you will too, even as we're here sitting together, that the Spirit of God would use His Word to convict and change us and to grow us more and more into um, the likeness of Christ. So what I want to talk about today is the compassion of Christ and the love of Christ. And in that, I want us to be convicted of our snobbery and convicted of our lack of compassion and convicted of our failure to trust God to work in situations that we would either view as hopeless or pointless. Why would God help those people over there? And that gets in the way of our fulfillment of the Great Commission. When we set up barriers and we set up restrictions on what we think God will or will not do. And when we look at people and decide that those are not the type of people that we would go and share the gospel with, because they would never, never accept the gospel. So, 
If you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 7. We'll um, be focusing on verses 31 into chapter 8, uh, the miracles of uh, Christ healing the deaf man and Christ feeding the 4,000. But just to pick it up in context, um, I'd like to read from verse 24. And from there, Christ arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want any, anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephtatha, which is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, And they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to the homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come a far way. His disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to to the district of Dalmanutha. Okay. So to understand uh, these three stories, they're tied together in a unit in the book of Mark. So to understand what's going on, we need to kind of know what Jesus has been doing for the past three weeks. So if you were to look at the scene and then rewind in time and look at what Jesus had done, you would see that he was teaching in the northern regions of Israel. And we're going to actually look at a map because it's going to be helpful, but not yet. Um, yeah. Ah, you got it. Okay, never mind. We'll be looking at a map. So Jesus has been in the northern region uh, 
teaching and preaching, and he's been having conflict with uh, Pharisees who have come up from Jerusalem um, because they heard about this prophet and they don't like him. Um, Some notable accounts that have happened. Uh, Jesus has fed 5,000 Israelites, much in the way that he has uh, just fed the 4,000 people in that crowd that we just saw. He's also been on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. So Sea of Galilee is the one that looks a little bit like Africa. And towards the top there, there's a town, and that's where that demoniac was, the garrison, the one with a a legion of demons within him. And so Jesus had cast out those demons into a herd of swine that went plunging into the sea and drowned. And so all the people from the Decapolis and the surrounding region came to him and said, hey, you need to get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. And so Jesus got in a boat and returned back to his, uh, into the region of Galilee again. And so Jesus has, has been teaching in that region. And then, surprisingly, and it had to dis- surprise the disciples that he did this, Jesus leaves the the region of Galilee, and goes north. And if you look along the coast, there's a city of Tyre, and even towards the top of Sidon. And he does it quietly, and he does it privately. He's not going, and he's proclaiming and teaching. He's just walking up there. And the disciples have to be thinking, Jesus, this isn't Israel. What are we doing up here? But in this time, that we read the Syrophoenician woman comes. And it seems a little confusing on the surface, the way that Jesus speaks to her. She says, can you heal my daughter? And he says, you know, I'm not going to give you bread that belongs to children. And so we think, man, Jesus, really? That seems awfully mean and cruel, like you called her a dog. I mean, in that culture, like you don't want to be calling people dogs. They're unclean, filthy animals. Um, Even if they do live in your house and eat the crumbs off the floor. And And what's really happening in that conversation is that there, there's this, he's bringing up the moment of crisis that they all see. The question is, does salvation belong only to the Jews? Or does it also go to the Gentiles as well? And so in that conversation, the key word that Jesus uses is first. You know, the dogs will have their time, but first let's feed the children. And that, in one sense, kind of presses her in and say, ah, oh, first. So the dogs can have their time. She humbly says, yes. So we're dogs. We're, I humble myself. I'll admit that. I, I still need you. And so rather than neglecting her need, Jesus says, ah, your daughter as well. And so in that in the story in and of itself, we're like, well, was Jesus kind of armbarred? Did she kind of argue him into a, into a box? And he's like, well, I guess I have to heal your daughter now. Well, if that's the only account we had, and we didn't see what Jesus did next, then we say, hmm, that's a little interesting, Jesus. But what we see is that Jesus turns around from that moment down, and he's going to be ministering to Gentiles for a short but very important time of his ministry. So then what happens is that, can I have the map again? Sorry. It's, it's kind of interesting. And the reason I have the map is because of the funny phrase that Mark uses. He says that Jesus went back to the Sea of Galilee through Sidon. So that's like saying, going from Tyre, go all the way up north just to get to the Sea of Galilee. It's like, I'm going to Reading through Crescent City. And you're like, completely out of the way. Why are you doing that? Well, it's in this time that he has this conversation with the Syrophoenician woman. And then, the, no doubt the disciples are expecting to go back to Israel, and he doesn't. He goes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the region of the Decapolis. Now, the region of Tyre and Sidon, it used to belong to Israel at one point. It used to belong to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. They were kind of all up in that region. And they were considered 
the dark tribes. Because these were the tribes, because they're surrounded by uh, all the Gentiles of the world, in the, during the time of ancient Israel, when there's kings and all, they were the first to go. They, they slipped into idolatry the quickest. They're surrounded by idolatrous nations, and they fell away the quickest. And they were always the darkest, darkest uh, tribes of Israel. So even going up there, even though it kind of does, in one sense, in the ancient times belong to Israel, there is an extreme prejudice that, that the, um, Israel has had towards those nations because they were so idolatrous. And so in some sense, they have kind of cast them off. Like those, they left us, they are abandoned, they're the lost tribes, they're the dark tribes, they don't belong to us anymore. And you can even see some of the prejudice in the Gospel accounts because even though uh, Galilee is not quite in the same predicament as Tyre and Sidon were, you understand that when Jesus is around Jerusalem, like, oh, you're a Galilean? You're a Nazarene? Yeah, we can tell from your really silly accent. And they always demean people from the north. So here you have these dark regions. But it's in these dark regions that Jesus comes. You will recognize this prophecy. There will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun, the northern land, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. And on the side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. And those who lived in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. And they will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of a harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Why? For unto us a son is born. Unto us a son is given. So Jesus spends most of his time in the darkest region of Israel, the place that needs it the most. And Jesus' first miracle, when he appears on the scene, is up in the dark regions where they need it the most. People were passing Jerusalem to go up to the dark regions. People from way down south, they're coming up to Galilee, and the priests are probably saying, hey, where are you going? It's like, you hear a great prophet up in the darker regions of Israel. So, here you have these dark regions. This is where Jesus is focusing his ministry. And so, they've got to be baffled, not only that he visits old ancient Israel territory, but that he goes on the other side of the lake, and he spends time with the Gentiles and the Decapolis. Now, more than ever, Jesus seems completely out of place. He's the Jewish Messiah, the, the Jewish Christ. The Jews have been looking forward to him, not the Gentiles. And, and Jesus comes and starts teaching himself as the Messiah. And why would the Gentiles care? But God cares. God cares, and he goes to them. So as the disciples are here with him in this Gentile region, they're surrounded by these foreign unclean, uncouth, socially unacceptable. People who eat pigs, which you don't do. Not only do they eat pigs, but they have swine herds. Swine herds. Like, this, like, this, I mean, these Jews are probably, like, the disciples are probably trying to keep, like, ten-foot distances between everybody in the crowd because they have to keep themselves from being unclean. So, in this context, we have to realize how the disciples are feeling in this moment. And the fact that Jesus is even ministering to, to Gentiles is probably baffling their minds. So, with that in mind, let's look at Christ's compassion. So the first thing we see is a story of a deaf man. 
So this deaf man, since he could not hear, he could not speak. Um, his condition, it really separates him, truly separates him from a community. More than being blind. If you're blind, you can't see anybody, but at least you can talk and converse and have relationships with people because you can hear and you can speak. But if you're, if you're deaf and you're mute and you cannot speak, then you're truly separated from, your, from society. And more importantly, it would have separated him from Jesus. Because if he could not have heard that the healer was in town or had not heard that this healer, this Messiah, was what he was teaching, how could he ever go to Jesus and say, can I get healed? So fortunately, he had some friends who brought him to Jesus. And so understand the complete helplessness of his plight. He can't ask for help. He can't. He doesn't even know, really, in some sense, that this is the man he goes to. He's just brought to Jesus, this great teacher, and there's a conversation going on around him that he really has no clue what's being said. He might have hints, but like the full picture, it's not his to grasp. And besides the fact, he's in a crowd of people. He's just another face in a massive crowd of Gentiles. I mean, why should he get any special attention or importance? But then look what Jesus does. It says in verse 33, taking him aside from the crowd privately. He takes this man in his condition, and instead of saying, I don't have time for you, Jesus takes him aside privately to spend personal time with him. And when he does that, it says in 33, he put his finger into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his, his tongue. I mean, have you ever yeah, touched someone's tongue? Right? Yeah, you, your faces are telling me everything. Like, Jesus did that. I mean, why would you do that? And he said, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, after the be opened. Now, Jesus didn't have to touch the man. He didn't. Jesus, time and time again, he doesn't even have to be present. He says, your daughter's healed. The fever's left. Or, you know, there's no reason he had to touch them. It's not like a common practice, per se, for Jesus to always touch everybody he heals. But he touches this man, this unclean Gentile. And Jesus is not treating him like a burden. He's giving him that that private time that he needs. And then when he's there, when he's dealing with the man, it says he gives his sigh. And the sigh is a loaded sigh. It's not just like a... That's not the sigh he did. It's like this deep groan, like a long, deep sigh. It's it's a sigh that we all get when you have like that really heavy moment. Your heart's just really burdened over something. And you just... You sigh. And so Jesus looks up to heaven and he gives this deep sigh, this, this weariness and this tiredness that, that comes from looking at this man with the effects of sin all over him. I mean, the reason why he's mute, the reason why he's deaf is that sin has entered into this world. And Jesus sees the pain and destruction and he groans and he weeps and he sighs because of it. And he knows that he's coming to conquer sin and death. He knows that he'll reign victorious. He knows the purpose for which he's come into the world. But still, he doesn't negate the fact that we feel pain, that we feel the effects of sin. And he sympathizes with it. And he sympathizes with our groanings and our pain and our weaknesses. And he sympathizes when we feel the heaviness when we look across a dying world, a world full of sin. So Jesus' commands be opened. And it probably gives us a translation just to make sure he doesn't have like this magic word like aftatha. He's like, okay, so everybody, if you say aftatha, people get healed. It's like, no, Jesus is just commanding. 
be opened. So make sure there's no misunderstandings that he's commanding it. And then the results in verse 35. It says his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. The result of this miracle is really twofold, maybe even threefold. Like, first of all, he couldn't hear, and now he can hear. And he couldn't speak, but now he can speak. And he hasn't grown up hearing language. But now he knows language, and he can hear language. So Jesus repairs completely his mental faculties so he can actually know language as well. It's an amazing miracle. The people are astounded. You do all things well. They're amazed. This really, really jars them, probably more than a lot of the other miracles he's been doing. And the word for released, say his tongue was released, is like the idea of when chains fall off a prisoner. Like the chains just all fall, fall off. We sing in that song, my chains fell off, my heart was free. Like that, that feeling of the shackles just coming off. His tongue being bound and held is now free to speak. Now before we go into the response, we must understand. So I, I shared with you Isaiah 9, where it said that a light would shine in these dark regions. There's also another prophecy, and it's one that we read over the time of Scripture, Isaiah 35. And Isaiah 35, it's an important connection to this miracle because it's the only time in the, in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation, that the same word is used for a mute man. It's the only time that we ever see in the, in the New Testament this miracle God says in the Old Testament of Isaiah 3.5, a a mute will speak. And this is the only miracle where a a mute speaks. And and it's interesting that it's recorded. And he's recording it in the Gentile side of things. And so in Isaiah 3.5, it's like there's chapter after chapter, a judgment will come, judgment will come. It will come against Tyre. It will come against Sidon. It will come against Jerusalem. And so after you feel the weight of all the judgments, then in Isaiah 3.5, as we read, he says, but no, peace will come, holiness will come, desert lands will become glorious, and the mute will speak, and the dumb will hear. And so Isaiah 35 is not just looking forward to this one moment when Jesus uh, heals one man who is mute. It's looking forward to the, the last times when all who are mute, all who are burdened, like all the people that are in Christ, like the, the effects of sin are finally tossed off. And, and brought away. And so Jesus is showing that He is that Messiah who's going to come and give salvation, not only to the Jews, but to the Jew- Gentiles. Salvation will come from the Jews, but it's not strictly for the Jews. So in verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one. But it says, the more He charged and the more zealously He proclaimed it. Why did Jesus ask them to not to speak? This is actually a theme in the book of Mark. If you watch like, over and over and over again, Jesus says, after he heals them, don't tell anyone. D- don't tell anyone. And in fact, that's what happened in the whole book of Mark. Time and time again, don't say who, don't tell anybody. Don't, don't. And then, and, and, and a part of the reason why is because people just don't understand who he is. It's like, he's a healer. This is a great healer came into town. And Jesus knows, I'm more than a healer. And so the whole book of Mark, there's a misunderstanding about who Jesus is, and it keeps happening again and again and again and again and again until he's at the foot of the cross and he dies and says, it is finished. And then finally Mark 
records someone who got it right. The centurion said, surely this must be the Son of God. So Mark is showing us, as, as Christ is doing all these miracles, that you cannot understand Christ and what He's doing until you see Him on the cross dying for atonement for sin. Until that point, you don't have a complete picture. So he warns them, don't say anything. The one exception being the Gerasene demoniac. He says, have at it. Go tell everyone what I've done. Now this is interesting. Because he's back in the place that kicked them out. They said, get out of here. He said, I'm gone. Now he's back, and people are flocking to him. What's the difference? There was a famous Gerasene demoniac that went proclaiming to all the capitalists that Jesus had healed him. And so, no doubt, that had some type of effect. Or maybe his fame has just spread wider and wider and wider. So the gospel we preach is not just a gospel of physical well-being. There's like the um, social gospel. Well, all Jesus cares about is that, you know, the poor are fed and the rich aren't, you know, greedy rich people anymore. And that's true. There, there is an aspect to that. that God cares about the physical well-being of humanity, our physical plight. That's why there's a resurrection, a new body with no curse on it. And we look forward to that day. And until then, we as Christians, and we always have, have looked out for the physical needs of the world, even those who are our enemies. When plagues ravished Europe, you know, the Romans, the Christians are the ones who stayed, not caring for their own lives, being willing to stay and minister to someone who's your enemy and help them get better. And they say it's because people have stayed and helped people get better and kept the sanitary levels down. That's why the plagues would stop, is that Christians were fighting it and willing to lay down their lives and care about the physical well-being. And as much as that's true, it's not enough if you stop there. It's not enough just to care about the physical well-being of people. We also must be people who are proclaiming the Christ who died for atonement for sin because the the we can help someone in a moment and alleviate a hunger for a moment or the thirst for a moment or get them into a house and shelter for a moment. But eventually, you want the effects of sin to, to be broken forever in their life. You want Christ to come in and be their Savior and the Lord so they don't have to suffer for eternity. And so our, our, our care and their absolute concern and compassion for the momentary well-being reflects a deeper desire for us to for them to come and to know Christ Jesus and to be saved by Him. So that's the deaf man. So we have the Syrophoenician woman, and then we have the, uh, we see the compassion that Jesus, the personal compassion Jesus has with this deaf mute man, and then we have the feeding of the 4,000. These all belong together in the book of Mark. <clears throat> a lot of people say that this, critical scholars, scholars who don't like the Bible say, well, this is obviously a retelling. You fed 5,000, and now you're feeding 4,000. It seems like the same exact story. I don't think so. Mark is really careful to emphasize some of the differences between the two. It's a different sized crowd, different amount of bread, different amount of fish, different amount that's left over. In the, first, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus left on a boat right away. This time, Jesus stayed for a while. So it really does beg the question then, so why is Mark included? Why is it in the gospel narrative? Why? I mean, so some people look at the feeding of the 5,000 as like a proof that Jesus is God, right? Who, who else can take a few loaves of bread, a few loaves of fish, and make thousands of bread and thousands of fish? You could only do that if you're a creator, if you're God. 
So you could say, okay, Mark, you, are, you already proved your point. Why are we doing it again? So the reason why he's doing it again is some of the glaring differences. The first time is one day in to Jesus' teaching, and the disciples come up and say, hey, Jesus, the people are hungry. You need to send them away. And then Jesus says, hey, so what are we going to do about it? How many loaves do we have? Let's feed them. And they say, no way, you can't feed them. And then he does, and they're astounded. This time, it's three days into it, and the disciples have said nothing. That initial concern, not there at all. And so Jesus says, hey, goes to his disciples and approaches them. I have compassion on these people. I want to feed them. Well, Jesus, how are you going to do that? We've only got a few fish. They need, you know, uh, we're in the wilderness. We're not going to get more bread, more fish. And, and you're sitting there like, really? Smaller crowd. Right? Smaller crowd. He did it with 5,000. He should be fine. Right? So here are the disciples saying, how are you going to deal with this? And everybody wants to scream at him because Jesus can make bread out of nothing. <laughs> he can if he wants to. And this word for compassion, that Jesus says, I have compassion on him. That's like the hit your gut compassion. That's the one that churns your gut. It's like you, you feel like deep, oh, in your gut, churning, groaning sense of compassion. That's the type of compassion that Jesus says he has for these people. And it's almost like he's saying, I have compassion for them because they're hungry. What about you? Do you have compassion? His disciples, they're sitting there saying, I don't know how you're going to feed them. So either they're just being completely spiritually dull, completely forgetful that Christ has done miracles like this before. And we do that. I mean, really. I mean, think about your life. God worked something awesome in your life. And two months later, you're all freaked out over the same thing again. Right? So we tend to be that way. We tend to be forgetful. It's like we think that God's, you know, maybe God's there to help us once, but he's not going to help us again, right? God, please help this situation. I was, I was foolish, I was stupid. God, please help me this time. It's, it's like when I'm like, sucking fumes on gas tank. It's like, God, I was a fool to be on the freeway with an empty gas tank. I promise you this will never happen again. I'll be wise. Like six months later, I'm like, God, you know... <laughs> I had said that I wouldn't be foolish. <laughs> but here I am again, begging you for help. And sometimes we think God's like a lifeline of who wants to be a millionaire. You've got him. You got him once. Don't come asking again. God's not that type of God. He's going to help you again and again and again and again. So either they're just being forgetful or think that Christ won't do it because he's done it once, he won't do it again, or simply... They weren't expecting Jesus to miraculously feed a group of Gentiles. It's like, oh, they're hungry? Oh, send them away. <laughs> let's get rid of them. Yeah, yeah, everyone go now. And Jesus says, no, they'll, they'll faint. I have concern for that. And so the application on that is obvious, that we tend to think that God won't do amazing stuff for people who are, that we kind of, in our own heads, is being other, them, over there. Why are we here? Why are we dealing with them? These people stink. I don't want to talk to them anymore. Right? And we start setting up all these boundaries. And we are really just can't wait to get out of there. But God wants to be there. And God wants to have um, compassion on them. And wants people to be healed and people to be saved. 
So in, these, in this narrative, Mark is taking this detour to say, not only that Jesus has compassion on Gentiles, that, that salvation is not for the Jews, it's also for the entire world, but that Jesus has compassion on those that we have a hard time feeling compassion for. And so it's radical, it really is. I mean, he touched his tongue. It's a radical type of love that Jesus is showing. But the thing is, we are the body of Christ. We are called to show that same type of compassion to the world. We need to be this way. Remember we talked about, if you are here two, two weeks ago, that Jesus called us to discipleship. And discipleship had a high cost. You have to be willing to leave your family, to sell your homes, to give up your own life. Why? Well, he's worth it, so the cost will be worth it to you. But if you are not willing to lay down your own life this way, you can't be compassionate this way. If you're still holding on to your own rights, holding on to your own, uh, your own property, if you're expecting your best life now, then you're not going to have the compassion to do this type of work. So the question is, how are we being the body of Christ to those who are far off. I mean, I could probably like name situations, and I've been in them. I've been in Arcata Plaza, and you want to like, you know, like you look at somebody, it's like this guy is crazy. I mean, he's just straight up crazy. I don't think God's going to do anything with him. I'm about ready to call it, but then the person next to me is really pressing in. It's like, no, 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 let's keep going, let's keep trying. And it's like, oh, how foolish of me, right? Because I think like somehow God won't actually like somehow God's not concerned about that person. He is concerned about that person. Or you think like someone um, who just has a completely, radically different lifestyle than you. Right? He's like, this person lives in such a different way. I have no room to be able to speak to him. I don't even know what common ground we have. I don't, I, I mean, how could they possibly even feel like I could, I could speak to them? They, I don't, I haven't walked in their shoes, Right? I can't sympathize with them. Like, I didn't go what they went through. But it's really, in one sense, not about us being able to sympathize with them, but to bring them to the one who can sympathize to him. So we have to have the compassion and the love to radically be willing to go to those types of people. The one that the world ignores, the world will not go to and seek their well-being. Do we have that same deep-gutted, wrenching compassion for those who are lost? Do we have the same groan and sighs when we see people in their suffering from the consequences of their sin? Because sometimes we look at people and they're, and they're suffering in their situations like, yeah, well, they got themselves that way. You know, all, they made all these bad decisions and got them there. Well, yeah, that's what it means to be a sinner, right? They're a sinner. They have a sin nature. That's why they made all those crazy choices that got them into that really horrible situation. And somehow the Gospels not... Worthy of them because they made bad choices. We all made bad choices. We made the worst choice ever. We rejected God as our king. And so all of us made bad choices. The gospel doesn't come to people when they start making good decisions. The gospel comes to someone, changes them, and then people start making good decisions. So we don't go to people who've got their life all fixed and say, now that you've got your life fixed, do you want to hear about Jesus? Because it's usually the people who think they've got their life all fixed that will never listen to you. You say, you're a sinner. You're at the end of the rope. No, no, I'm not. It's usually the people, they're at the end of the rope, 
who you say, you're, you, you, you're, a, you're a robber, you're a thief, you're this, you're that. That's what the Bible says. Like, yes, I am. Yes, I am. They're usually the people, that's, I think, that's why more people, Paul says, you know, who is saved among you? Who's in your church? Wise, lofty professors? Articulate statesmen? No. It was the poor and the lonely, the people who are the poor and meek of the earth. They're the people that recognize that they need Jesus. Those are the people that we go to. So how do we cure our own apathy? How do we crush our own snobbery? How do we, how do we see someone the way that God sees them? And the way that we do it is to look to Jesus. Right? It says, you know, let us throw off all the sin that shackles us and hinders us, and let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It says in Corinthians that, that we behold Christ, and we see his glory, and the glory is just who he is, the display of his attributes. And when we do that, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We become more and more like Christ Jesus. So if we're suffering with this type of hard-heartedness, the first thing to do is pray. And beg God. And it's kind of like, make me a person that feels this type of compassion, who actually does steps to reach those who are in these situations. And then in doing that, you also turn to the book of Mark, or the gospel, the Bible, and look at God, and see how God has this type of compassion. And as we fall more and more in love with Christ, as we, as we see Him clearer and clearer, the work of the Holy Spirit is to change you more and more into that image so that we become more and more those types of people, the people who can do that, the people who will, who will do the things that the world won't do. So that's why it's important to come back to these passages again and again and again. These things have a shelf life in our hearts. They tend to expire. You have to put it back up there, right? Come, Keep coming to Christ over and over again. That's why it's so important that we take communion every week. Every week, we can't forget that Christ died for us Sinners. I mean, when, the, when we look at Christ on the cross, two things should happen. The joy, right? And the excitement that God so loved the world that he sent his son. And Jesus so loved us that he did this for us, that we were worth it to him. But at the same time, the realization that we were so wicked, so horrible, that it took Christ on the cross to save us. So we need that constant reminder so that we would become humble people, compassionate people, in love with Christ. So we would be glad to give up our lives say, what would you have me do, Jesus? What is your mission? I am all in. So we need this type of attitude if we are to fulfill the Great Commission, if we are supposed to be effective as a church the way we should be. I hope you're convicted. I really do. I hope that this changes us again, just one step at a time, by leaps, by steps by inches, but man, let us be changed by God. That's our prayer. So if the worship team, the rest of them would come up, and then the ushers come and pass out communion, please hold it um, until we partake together.
So we are to consider him and have our mind among us, which is Christ Jesus, that though he had all the riches of heaven, he was willing to lay them aside and come down to this world and die for sin. Let's have that mind in ourselves that was in Christ Jesus. This is not my Bible. I can't find mine. Paul tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup and blessed it, saying, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Told us to do drink this cup in remembrance of him. And he promised that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine again until he came and drank it with us at the wedding feast, the day when all the great fulfillments of Isaiah are spoken of. That there will be no more mute, deaf, sick, hungry. And Christ will be fulfilled and happy and joyed with joy forever and ever in all eternity, to the praise of his glory. Please stand.